podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, John. It is springtime. We finally had some spring-like weather. Got outside, and uh, thanks to you, also watched a really obscure, slightly confounding movie. So what more could I ask for today? <laughs> That's uh, that, that sounds delightful. Um, I recently had a chance to uh, do a guest spot on a, uh, on someone else's podcast and in the, and having done like hosting a podcast for five years, but barely doing any guesting. It's, it was a weird, like it was a weird experience of being like nervous that like I could be interesting as a person to talk to like as receiving the questions as opposed to asking them so uh i think it went well but i'm kind of feeling like more at ease now just being back in the saddle and like talking to talking to you and like with (laughs) with our established rhythms and like it's not like uh it's not like we're never going to have anything interesting to talk about so um it's good to be back in the saddle it it feels like it's been a bit but that's probably just because time is broken in covid life so you know today's theme is specifically a pair of movies that we're going to be talking about from one filmmaker um the movies are called symbio psycho taxoplasm take one and also take two let's be clear it's take one and take two and a half oh yes sorry i don't know why it's called take two and a half but it's called take two well i i kind of know why it's called take two and a half we we can we can we can talk about that um (laughs) so here's here's the story of how I came to pick this film. Um, we, uh, l- last year around this time, or, or well, I actually I don't know if it was around this time. At some point last year, during uh, the various Black Lives Matter protests, a lot of streaming companies were doing things to try and highlight film ma- films from black filmmakers. And uh, on Criterion, they brought uh, one of the films that they made available as part of a series of films that they were just letting people watch without even having to have an account, which, hey, I thought was pretty neat. Um, one of the films was this film called Symbio Psychotaxoplasm Take One. And I had never heard of it, but I saw that title and it was like, oh, that sounds different. I need to go check it out. And so I, I watched it and... Uh, I mean, I, I think the I think the word avant garde is definitely appropriate here. I watched it in the in the context of of that, and I thought this was it was really interesting. And so, f- fast forward to uh, fast forward to now, I, I felt like I wanted to talk. Uh, this would be a good time for us to sort of dig into this, but the actual story of symbiopsychotaxoplasm is actually even more fascinating in the context of the story of its director, William Greaves. I don't know if you have you. D- done any like looking into the history of William Greaves since watching since watching these movies? Just a little bit, and it, it is something that uh, we, we talked uh, off the podcast. But I was talking about that there are certain things I want to follow up now that I've seen these films, and 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 more of what he's done post this film um, is definitely one of those things. The other thing we should point out too is uh, just the way that we work these episodes um we typically come up with the theme the prior month and then it just because of timing and family stuff and and lives it takes a little while to record it so we had recorded the um episode for anime uh in the early part of february and said well what should we do for our, our our next one i think we were both agreed february being um uh black history month we said we said let's pick something you know, that aligns to that. And I think that was one of the other um, leading factors that led you to kind of rethink, oh, you know, what have you ever seen? Mm-hmm. Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. 
which I can now say quite fluently after <laughs> reading it so many times. Um, so we had kind of thought of this as our Black History Month pick. Um, and just, again, because of the way it takes us to kind of watch things and record it, here we are on March 20th recording our pick that we picked way back in February. <laughs> so just the way it is. But yeah, uh, he's he's probably the most fascinating thing about these films to me. So I haven't had, besides watching a little bit of a documentary about him and, and, and reading about him for context of this episode. I know he's done a lot more stuff, particularly around civil rights and particularly in the documentary genre, but I want to now chase down because of these films. Yeah. So, so let's, before we get into the movie proper, because um, my first experience was sort of just watching this movie and not knowing anything about uh, William Greaves as a filmmaker and then coming back and actually reading up on Greaves, uh, his life and his career afterwards, coming back and watching this sort of actually sort of a sense to underscore how much of a departure and how much of a like unique standout uh, these, this, this film and I guess it's sequel uh, would be. Um, so the, the short version is that uh, William Greaves, uh, he grew up in Harlem and he uh, wanted to become an actor. And so he studied with uh, at the actor studio with people like Marlon Brando. He, you know, he was uh, in terms of like maybe not acting in movies uh, with Marlon Brando, but like in terms of honing his craft with some pretty well-known, uh, well-known actors. And he eventually grew weary of the acting process because what he was being offered was largely stereotypical uh, parts that were sort of stereotypes for black people that he did felt weren't uh, were, were sort of not dignifying uh, enough. And so he, at that point, decided he he was learning from some uh, people about like some production stuff and learning a little bit about like how films actually get produced and so he decided that he could potentially try his hand uh, at filmmaking and would have a better chance of doing that if he went up to Canada specifically with the National Film Board of Canada now for me that is just an interesting uh, point because the um, when we did our uh, uh, in, a, in a previous episode, we talked about there was a documentary that I recommended called Kanesataki, 270 Years of Resistance, about the Mohawk Crisis in 1990. Um, <clears throat> that film was funded by the National Film Board of Canada. And um, and I remember when we were talking about it, just how wild it was that this organization that was, you know, w would fund the or how cool it was that this organization would film movies that would um that would be dedicated to some interesting causes. And so he ends up there doing a bunch of, at first, like low level entry uh, jobs and would eventually um, <clears throat> become like chief film editor. And around the time that he started to come into his own um, and sort of trying to look to start making his own films is really when the civil rights uh, movement is hitting its stride. And so he decides to leave Canada in the hopes of heading to uh, heading back to the U.S. and using his skills to try and help highlight the, like, using his film production skills to try and sort of make movies about the things that are happening within the civil rights movement. Um, and so most of his career ends up being uh, documentaries that are documenting specific moments or times or 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 sort of larger, like, black history types of uh, documentaries. So it's he is, he's sort of a, he has a very 
specific, like he has a very specific goal with what he's wanting to do. Um, and it's in the context of doing these like very interesting. And I've seen, I've, I've seen at least one of his more traditional documentaries and they're interesting and they're cool. And then that's, and that's all good. But it was during work on one of his projects that he got kind of a bit bored and decided that, uh, he wanted to try something else. And that is going to be the thing that we're talking about today. Uh, so why don't we get to it? Let's talk about Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Take one. Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One is a 1971 movie. Well, I mean, we'll talk about how it's not really a movie that came out in 1971, but uh, um, this is a this movie is definitely a departure from sort of Greaves's general body of work. And Chris, I know this is my pick. For, uh, these two films are sort of my picks for the episode, but I want to get a sense of what did you think these movies or specifically this first one was about? Yeah. Um, and I'll be honest, walking into it, I had no idea what this was about. Like I said, I didn't know who William Greaves was. I didn't, besides the weird name of the title and knowing it was a criterion selection, I didn't know anything about it. So if I were to, kind of summarize it for people who haven't seen the film. The film is, it's a, it's a play on the documentary form, uh, but it takes the documentary form and it kind of turns it rather brilliantly. Although I want to talk about that too. It kind of turns it inside out at its really base nature. It's a film about a filmmaker, William Greaves, um, auditioning two actors for a, film. At the same time, he has a documentary crew documenting the process of auditioning the actors for this film. There is a third crew that is filming the documentary crew, filming the audition process, and filming anything else of interest according to the themes that William Greaves as the, and I'm putting this in quotes, the director of the audition process, um, finds significant. So what you have is a documentary about a documentary about an audition process that ultimately gets intertwined to be a kind of a commentary on a number of things. It's a commentary on the nature and craft of filmmaking. It's a commentary on conflict. Um, it is a commentary on storytelling. It is a commentary on really loosely, and I only knew, figured this out after watching the second film um, about war and uh, specifically about Vietnam. You, you bring up the point that film was released in 71. It was actually filmed in 68, but actually really didn't get released, I think, until I want to say like 1992 or something like that, or 1996. Somewhere in the 90s, it finally got um, a little bit more of, of a release and started to get more recognition. So, it's a documentary about a documentary about a documentary that's wrapped up as a commentary, which then ultimately becomes a documentary about these many things. Um, and that doesn't begin to kind of hint at the visual aesthetic of the film or the fact that Greaves seems to be 
kind of hoodwinking not only the audience, but the people who are in the film and are filming the film and are filming the filming of the film. Uh, there are many layers to it, John, and it it was fascinatingly obtuse, I think is how I would call it. Um, there are some definite things that I want to talk about, but but that's my impression of this is is that is one of taking a form and turning it on its head to reflect uh, the intent of of uh, of its auteur, William Greaves. <laughs> How did I do? Did I did I pass the understanding test of symbiopsychotaxoplasm? Take one. I mean, I, I'll I don't know if you passed. I'll say you and I are probably on a similar level. So uh, how we objectively fare at it will probably differ, but uh, that's uh, uh, I think we're we're pretty close here. So I will say that on like. Watching this for the the second time uh, a year after the fact, like coming back to it and watching it a second time, I was surprised at my my memory of watching it the first time was that it was sort of pretty evenly split between sort of the layers of reality that exist within the film, the 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 scenes that are being shot, the the. Uh, the behind the scenes of like Graves giving the actors directions. And then of course the people filming all of that stuff being filmed and everything else sort of, it, it felt like I remembered it being kind of equally split, but I think the second time around and coming back to it a year later that it is mostly, it mostly exists on the level of uh, Greaves interacting with the crew and kind of being a dick to them. Um, and not, not, not in a, not in a, not in a super aggressive way, but just sort of being, uh, I don't mean that pejoratively either, because the the thing that I think that this movie is, uh, like, if you're think like, if you think about movies that are about someone trying to get a movie made, I feel like that's where actually most of the, most of the actual runtime of the film uh, takes place. And yes, there's parts where they'll have the the multiple simultaneous cameras uh, or different angles for the, the filming the actors running lines or um, I mean, we definitely need to talk about the the mutiny scene, which I think is probably why any of this uh, works. Um, but it, it feels like the most of the um, or I, 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 my take on Greaves putting this film together is that he wanted and i think why this works falls into like avant-garde experimental kinds of stuff is that uh it feels like the the impetus for making this film was i'm going to set up very specific situations with a poorly worded script um and, and basically setting up a production situation that was designed to generate conflict and seeing what would happen. What would these actors and these crew people do if I put them in a situation that I designed for them to be to be sort of not either nonsensical or potentially offensive or just sort of confusing? And uh, and so he, I think like Bill, Bill Greaves in this movie, I think he's playing a character like it doesn't feel like he's doing himself. It feels like he's doing a bit. Um and not and not just and not just like as a character, but like this whole movie feels like a bit like if I set up all of these things in one thing and then just sort of let it play out, let's see what would come out of it. And I think that the and and specifically what he wants to try and generate is confusion and contention within the crew. Well, I think you bring up a, a huge point. Uh, Bill Greaves is by far to me, especially in the first movie, he is the most 
watchable thing in the film. He is so good. Um, he's definitely, to my mind, and again, just within the, this was even before the context of watching the sequel, uh, which does a lot of different things as well. Um, he, he's so good. He's so charismatic and so watchable that like, as I, as the film was going on, like it kind of hit me. I'm like, this guy, stu- to your point, he studied in the actor studio. He studied alongside Brando and these other people. He knows how to act and he is acting in this. He is playing a character to generate conflict. So he's the only one um, really in on the joke and setting up these scenarios and these situations to see what would happen. Nothing could have happened. It, it, it's, it's the blind luck when we, we talk about, you talked about the mutiny scene. It, it, it's blind luck that he was so good at being this incompetent kind of um, mutton headed director who his script is a shambles and is somewhat inflammatory and he's not particularly great with the crew that the crew starts to realize how terrible this film or this audition process is. And as they're filming themselves, they start to consider like, this guy is an idiot. We have to do something about this. And and there is the talk of a mutiny. Uh, You know, without this, I don't think this film finds its footing, but it's, it's such a huge, um, it's 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 a it's just just a huge win for Greaves that 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 not only uh, was he able to evoke that kind of a response and and get that conflict alongside the conflict that's inherent in the script as the various actors and it's it's I think it's three sets of actors if I'm not mistaken um, kind of do these lines over and over again Freddie and Alice. Um, um, so the, the, the conflict inherent with the crew kind of mixes with the conflict of what's being spoken up in, in the words. And it's, it's brilliant. And it's also a, a tribute to how he took all of that and was able to edit together something that really has these different layers and also is just visually really kind of fun to watch when you have three sets of cameras kind of filming three different aspects of a thing. He's really good at, he'll do split screen. He'll do, um, he'll split the screen in, into three. So you'll see what camera one is doing while simultaneously, you'll see what camera two is doing with what camera three is doing. Um, and I should mention all over the backdrop, this takes place in New York City, of course. Uh, you also have the, the backdrop of the wonderful Miles Davis and, and, and his music playing in, in the background. So it instantly creates this mood that even if you don't want to take everything he's trying to do at face value or you just want to kind of put it aside as, um, you know, art for art's sake or, you know, is it a little too hoity-toity, uh, what he's doing I think winds up being really fascinating to watch, especially when you think about this was a black filmmaker, black director in 1968, where, you know, to the point, his frustration with acting, the the, the, the dignity and, and shape and size of the roles of the time were not particularly forthcoming, particularly when you don't have the clout of of a huge studio behind you or something like that. So just kind of, you know, pulling himself up by his bootstraps and doing something like, like this, this innovative, this kind of out there. um, It's a real, it's a real kind of interesting movie to experience just, just for that. And for the period of time that it takes place. in. I, yeah, I, I like your, I like your comment specifically about William Greaves as actor and giving him like he's being incredibly watchable because in addition to like, just sort of the, like the, um, 
there, there's two there's two places I want to bounce off of this with. The first is as it relates to like if you think of him as being the not just the the experimenter, the tinker, the person that's like pulling this all together and then sort of seeing if there's anything he can edit into a watchable movie after the fact. Like that's that's sort of the um that's sort of you think of the creative instincts to do something like that and but then also like him just him being on camera as this as this version of himself that is uh that's definitely acting he's giving himself a leading role in a movie where he's really good at and in in places where otherwise i mean he was at 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 the time he was producing this this was on a take this was when he was um taking a, a bit of a break from his day job which was producing uh, uh tv shows about you know about black culture with black he was trying to he had a job at that point and this was a break from that but like it certainly wasn't uh you know if, if we're talking about the you know the brandos and such it, it wasn't on a level of let's say scale or publicity that would have this and so to for him to have um for him to give himself that role and be really good at it is 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 pretty awesome. The other thing that as I was like doing as much reading up on this as I can uh, in the last couple of weeks was uh, one of the things that uh, came up was a, a, a repeated feeling of uh, a lot of when you're when you're talking about a lot of black filmmakers, a lot of that stuff does tend to get relegated to, you know, movies about, you know, the, the black struggle, whether it's slavery or it's more modern, like civil rights kind of stuff or more modern day stuff. It tends to get um, people who are known for being black filmmakers tend to get known for being a black filmmaker. Um, and when you're talking about, you know, avant-garde, weird, artsy movies, that tends to be a lot of white people shit. And uh, and there's not really a big overlap. And I think that a, a, a large appreciation that I saw f- from people uh, for this movie was that, no, this was someone who was a black filmmaker who came up with this particular movie that is almost nothing to do with being black. I mean, the fact that he, he is a black man and that that creates some interesting like uh, dynamics in the in, in the film itself. But the but this is a movie about a director who is kind of fucking with his crew uh, and people trying to figure out what his deal is um it is uh and in in a very sort of like in in a very consciously artful way um that puts it in different territory than than black filmmakers typically get pigeonholed into but we've kind of hinted at it let's talk about that mutiny scene um sure because i feel like this is sort of where the the film the film succeed like ultimately is a successful and is a watchable film uh, because of what happens with the mutiny scene. And, and of course, we talked about like Bill Greaves as an actor and as the person sort of experimenting this all together um, is is he's responsible for this whole thing. And and I think that the mutiny scene happens because of his experimenting. And so I still want to give him the credit, but it is well. We can argue uh, or discuss whether or not this is planned or not. I don't think this is like, and and I think that's also why it's successful as well. Is that it's not the is the mutiny scene planned? Is it unplanned? Um, is it uh, that even gets talked about within the scene itself, where the people are talking about it, and the fact that this does happen? Bill Greaves will talk about how he him or he he talked about how the movie didn't come together for him until he saw that footage. So he, yeah. by his own admission, this scene is the reason why the movie actually works. So for setup, it, throughout this movie, uh, throughout the movie that you've seen so far, 
uh, the the crew are trying to like as he's working with the actors and reading their lines and the things don't seem to be coming together and people are asking questions and having conversations and getting increasingly frustrated. The, the crew, the, um, uh, some of the crew people take a camera with some film stock and a sound recording equipment. They go into a room and they start a conversation where they try to sort of eventually hash out like what the hell is going on? Like are they, and uh, they're filming the whole thing and they are trying to figure out if this if will if bill greaves is uh if he's incompetent if he's uh like just just trying to figure out like what why is this not working like what is his deal what is he trying to accomplish and they go through a vast list of possible like things that could be happening um including the possibility that like the at least one or two people bring up the possibility that like if this scene if this footage that we're shooting right now of us talking makes it into the film, the viewer isn't going to necessarily know that this is a real conversation we're having. They might be thinking that Bill Greaves is just off screen giving us lines to read and this is a bit. And to me, that uh, <laughs> that idea, I mean, I, th- I think I think this was actually unplanned and I think it was actually sort of a sense of like, we just need to this place to vent and express our feelings uh, uh, of frustration is is great, but it also is compounded by the fact that you don't really know if you can trust what you're watching. What uh, what's your sort of initial takeaways for the uh, for the from the mutiny scene? You bring up a great point that watching it without the context of knowing anything else, which is what must have made this such a hard sell when they tried to release it originally. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know if the whole thing was planned and this was more like a mockumentary type of deal. Um, or if this was something more serious, it, it, it turns out you find out later, again, not, not to spoil take two and a half, but um, you find out that, in, in fact, they did not know. And, and it kind of, they, they use the fact that they did not know as they try to recreate the same sense of conflict um, 35, 40 years later when they do the sequel. Um, but watching it at the time, it was very confusing. And, and a, a lot of what I felt watching it was just trying to understand what layer I'm trapped in as a viewer? Where am I? Am I looking outside of this? Am I looking inside of it? Am I, am I just looking at this as like a weird kind of, you know, like they do electronic press kits now for <laughs> movies all the time? Is this like a, a first kind of mangled botched attempt at a, uh, electronic press kit for a film that never wound up getting released? So it's, it's interesting. I, I do ultimately fall on the fact that it wasn't planned and, and it was kind of the saving grace. Um, that allowed Greaves to find a f- kind of a, a another framework for what he wanted to do with the film and kind of tie it all together that way. So um, mm. it's an instrumental part of of the movie and kind of drives, I think, and this is something to talk about, for a film that was so little seen until so late, um, you can look at it now and you could say, not knowing its impact, like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that's being done here that you see being used, you know, in films today and in and, and, and more recent history where things are playing upon things that are playing upon things and happy accidents are kind of bridged in. Um, and I would love to be able to point to this movie as the driving force, but the fact that no one saw this makes this even more of a crazy anomaly for me. I wish I had more to say about it, but it, it, it it's really it's a confounding film and 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 one with going into it with with kind of no expectations or no context for what I'm about to see. It's a puzzle, and it's a it's a hard puzzle to crack, which is why I I keep driving back to 
Greaves' performance and, and kind of Greaves' role as kind of ringleader in the movie being what really drew me to what was happening because ultimately they're revolting because of his actions and you see his actions. So it kind of helps drive everything that way for me as a viewer from a narrative point because I don't have the context of what was actually happening as a viewer. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I specifically when I, I it occurred it occurs to me when uh, in in hearing you say that that I really didn't give you any sort of like I didn't give you any like warning or context. I just said we're pay- we're doing this, and <laughs> you you and I kind of threw you off the deep end a little bit. Uh, so I, I don't know if that helped or hurt your experience. <laughs> the conversation was literally well, you know, it's February. We, we should probably let, let's focus on Black filmmakers for Black History Month. Chris, we're doing Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. <laughs> There's two films. I really want to see the second one. That's our pick. Okay. <laughs> and this time, you know, it's it, it's funny. We'll talk about this a little bit when we talk about the recommendations section. But um, um, it, I, I haven't really been watching a lot of films lately. I just It's just m- movies have not been kind of front of mind when I'm not working and I'm looking for a break. So um, it took me a while to kind of like sit down and watch this and – Usually when I am watching something for the show, um, I'll do a lot of research. When I say a lot of research, I'll read Wikipedia. I'll read a couple of essays and articles and v- reviews of the film at the time. So I, I do have a sense of context. Um, but there's really nothing to read <laughs> about this movie to prepare you for what the movie is. And it, it is a little bit of a blessing and a curse. You know, it was not something that. Um, I was like from a minute in was like, oh my God, this is, this is something else. This is something I need to see. It was, thank God the movie's only about 75 minutes, but it was 75 minutes of, hmm, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> it was over and I'm like, I don't know what I just watched. I, I now need to kind of figure this out. Um, so, you know, great job on a great pick. <laughs> that's oh, that's good, though, because I, I mean, I find myself, especially with uh, when we get in, there are some filmmakers we talk about where when I'm doing some like homework and reading, watching up some and some of the other, other movies where I'm just like, I had basically that same reaction of I'm not entirely sure I know what I just watched, but OK, <laughs> so I, I'm glad to have uh, uh, put you through that once. <laughs> well, and maybe this is a good way to kind of segue into the next section, because I think this is one of the few cases where if you were to watch, like if I were to recommend watching this and I do recommend it, but I don't recommend just watching this. I really recommend especially since it's so short and the next movie is only an hour and a half. If you're really going to dive into symbiopsychotaxoplasm, you got to watch both. And I would recommend watching them, you know, fairly soon after the other, because for me, the second film opens up the first film. So if you're walking away going, Hmm, what did I just see? If you really want to know what you just saw, watch the second film, because in a weird way, it puts another layer on top of it, uh, which I found very entertaining. So um, I don't know if you got anything else to say about this one, John, but maybe we can go talk about this one more by talking about the next one. Absolutely. Let's talk about Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, take two and a half. Oh 
All right, so I feel like it would probably be good to give a quick rundown of the sort of release history or lack thereof of Take One um, to sort of bridge us into the conversation around Take Two because part of that actually forms part of Take or part of Take Two and a Half, sorry, um, itself. Um, so basically, the reason why Take One was never uh, given a proper release uh, is not actually just because it's weird as hell, um, but because the um, I think it was it was supposed to be screened for a either Sundance or a Sundance type film festival, and the projectionist who put the who was showing the film to the person running the whichever film festival it was, uh, put in the wrong uh, used the wrong real order. So like the the film was shown out of order, um, and that movie is already. I, I mean, again, I think it's amazing, and once you get past the confusion of it, I, I'm I'm actually real 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 psyched for it but it is weird and throwing it out of order just makes it uh apparently uh unwatchable and unfollowable and so they decided that they weren't going to release it and so uh bill Grease, not knowing that the film was shown out of order um basically took that rejection as meaning that this he thought that this whole project was a failure uh and sort of left dejected and you know, went back to a career producing uh, some pretty cool documentaries and and still working. But that, but he he thought for like twenty years that, or yeah, I guess about twenty to twenty five years or so that Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One was a failure and was largely unseen by anyone. Um, but in the early nineties, there was a museum that wanted to do a retrospective on his uh, on his film career because he still had all of his documentaries about various different parts of uh, black uh, history and black culture. And so they wanted to do a they wanted to do a, like we're going to show all of your movies uh, to sort of highlight your work. And so they're going through the list of all the films that he produced, and they said that you know there's this one film here. I, it's called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. I have I've never heard of it. And he was like, No, I don't want. No, we don't need to watch that. And the person who was curating the the this event was like, Well, what do you mean? No, we, you, we have to watch. It. And the more that he dug in and said he didn't want people to watch it, the more this person pressured them. And then when they finally you know, he they finally convinced him to, uh, to 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 dig it out of wherever it was, and they watched it, and immediately were like, "Well, we have to. This has to be the headliner of the festival. Like, this is really cool." And then it's in so that's in the '90s when it starts getting shown around in its proper form, uh, in the right uh, in the correct order, and that's when you start to see people realize what this movie is and, and and one of the people who sees it is actor steve buscemi um who becomes a real champion for it and it's actually through his uh his efforts along with uh eventually i think he ends up showing it to steven soderbergh the two of them are eventually it, it takes a, a long time but eventually they're able to because they like the movie enough um they're actually eventually able to secure funding so that bill grease can shoot uh the sequel to Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. So Take Two and a Half uh, came out in 2003, I believe, uh, or possibly 2005. Wikipedia is not super helpful, but we'll say in the early to mid 2000s. And what the Take Two and a Half actually is, I, I was expecting a... I was expecting him to basically try to recreate the experiment to like, let's, let's do another movie where I'm shooting scenes with actors kind of giving the crew mixed signals and having people be upset about it and seeing what kind of magic we can uh we can conjure up again but 
and, and I think smartly, this move, take two and a half actually isn't really that at all. Um, I think take t- I think my take on take two and a half is that really it is sort of a reflection and examination of take one. Um, it is a thing like instead of being, uh, instead of trying to do the same thing that they did last time, I think it's more just exploring into sort of what are the things that happened when we were shooting take and making take one and sort of trying to like unpack and, and explain it. And I think you hinted at that, um, in our first segment. So do you want to, uh, do you want to take it from here? Yeah. So take two and a half. I, I, again, like I said in the earlier segment, it really informs take one, um, and kind of talks through that process. So a lot of what I understood just around the kind of the nature of the setup and, and how Greaves was kind of portraying both himself and the way that he was trying to find conflict. A lot of that comes to light in take two and a half, which actually starts this is my interpretation. I have no idea if this is right. But I said the joke to John earlier of, you know, 20 minutes in, what you're actually seeing is immediately what happens after the end of take one, which is now there's a new set of actors. Um, uh, and they're starting to run through the lines of the audition. You just see more of that. Uh, and from 1968. From 1968, from the first section. And it's really fascinating. I mean, the, the one thing that I'll, I'll say is, and I wish I knew, even kind of like reading through the Wikipedia, I don't know what the actors' names are, but the actress who plays Alice, this final Alice, she is magnetic in the first 20 minutes in, in, in 1968. And the way she plays against Freddie, they're a biracial couple. Uh, they're also kind of in conflict about abortion and they're in conflict about he's he might be homosexual and he's in denial on it so there's all these things going on and this had been going on throughout the entire first film but the way that they these two have at it um there's something electrifying about it so you spend the first 20 minutes there and then the 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 film that you're watching slowly kind of gets grainy and now what you're realizing is you're watching footage of it in a theater now it's it's the early 2000s and it's William Greaves and it's Steve Buscemi and they're doing a Q and A. You know, it, it, theoretically, it could be something like Sundance, which is where Buscemi saw the film for the first time. But it's it's that type of festival when there's a Q and A, and it really then spends a good amount of time talking about, you know, what was your intent? What was the editing like? How who was in on it? Who who knew? And um, one of the crew member is there, and and he he's very much like they're talking about the themes and he's like that none of that came to me because all I thought was I was documenting this film and it was going off the rails and we didn't know what to do. And we thought we would take a stand just to kind of show you like, Hey, this is what we think we're not happy. And this is our protest. Um, so it's really fascinating to inform the first film that way. But then because this is William Greaves and because this film is called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, you're going to have levels upon levels. So what winds up happening is they get those same two actors 35 years later and they construct a new scene and it's back in Central Park. And it's except the only thing really different is now Steve Buscemi has a camera and sometimes he's filming and informing. Um, and we start to go through the same routine again. But the same routine can't be the same because now it's completely informed by the first film. 
So you have one or two sections with the crew and they're inside a little trailer talking. And the first thing that happens is they call out and go, this cannot be like the first film. Because with the first film, we had no idea, no context for what was happening. You have the context of the first film. So by just nature of that knowledge, this can't be what it was before. So we have to figure out how to work around that. So it's an interesting piece. It doesn't really, to my mind, do a lot with that. This doesn't feel like film within a film within a film again. But what winds up happening, and this is where I kind of want to throw it back to you, John, because I don't know if I just missed something key. Um, we start to go through the permutations of this kind of dialogue scene. So Freddie and Alice, they meet after not having seen each other for 35 years. Um, they're having this conversation and there are these mixed feelings and emotions as to what's trying to be conveyed. Freddie is, um, is, is doing okay, although he has HIV. Um, uh, Alice kind of went to Europe and became a very famous, uh, singer. And now they're meeting and Freddie has an ask of Alice. And it, it, it has to do with in the event of his death to look after this young girl who was a junkie and, and has a beautiful singing voice and, and the conflict that arises out of that. So the film takes a lot of time to kind of work through the permutations of that. Do it this way. Do it that way. Oh, the sun's here. So, you know, stay within the shade of a tree. Um, and, you know, I'm into it and Bill is being Bill. He's not wearing the green mesh shirt from the first film, but he's, you know, he's very dapper and still just as eloquent in what he's, what he's purposely obscuring while he's trying to convey. He's basically playing the same character again. Um, although an older kind of more, um, friendly version of that. And I'm watching it. I'm having a good time. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how she comes into it, but a third person enters the conversation. And I, I, I guess she's like a, she's an acting psychologist or something, or she's a, an acting therapist. I don't know what she is, but the film goes kind of batshit insane in its last 20 minutes as these repressed feelings that these two actors have as the characters, I think, start to bubble up and start to really cause some emotion and turmoil and conflict. And there's this weird third person there who's sometimes acting like Freddie and sometimes acting like Alice. And it gets weird. Yeah. And it gets to a point where it suddenly becomes reconciled. <laughs> like William Greaves comes up and he's like, hey, 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 we should now let's draw that back in. Now let's get back to the script. And then they film the rest of the of the show. They kind of film it like the movie they film what happens when freddie and alice go to meet jamila who is in the woods and what they do in central park and it feels like they're now just filming it you don't see the documentary crew you really don't see anybody else but you see the third woman <laughs> and i don't and it just it it's almost lynchian in the way it throws me for this loop of like these these barriers of reality meeting and coexisting without commentary um, and without trying to be horrific or weird or real or strange, it's just, it's there. And I think it's such a weird thing. Help me understand it, John. Help me explain what I watch. Because I'll say this, I really liked it. I like Take Two and a Half more than Take One. Because it has all the best parts of Take One for me. And then just goes off into this other tangent that I find really fascinating yet somehow i'm left more confused i need a take three and three quarters which i know is not going to happen because william greaves sadly passed away in 2014 but i need some context and resolution john what a, what the hell is happening in this movie 
Oh man, Chris, I am so sorry to tell you that like I actually probably am not the person to give that to you. Um and which but 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 there's a specific reason why that is. Um so I my my overall like take on the movie is that this if you think about it in terms of trying to do another symbiopsychotaxoplasm, I don't think it works. And I think that and it's hard to know what may have been the intention in the production of the film, but I think that in at the very least in the editing and the assembly of the final film with everything that's been shot, you can tell that um, you can pretty much tell that Bill Greaves uh, agrees with that um, because so much uh, the first the first big chunk of the movie is actually just additional footage from the from the from 68 uh that was cut from the first movie and stuff that specifically focuses on the two actors who play, was it Freddie and Alice? Um, so, um, that I think, and, and specifically he found stuff that, uh, within their acting, like focusing on that footage, I think really helps to set up the, the acting stuff that takes up the last chunk of the movie. Um, and I think that's an, like that to me feels like you are like, you, that feels like like narrative by way of editing. Like we have all this stuff. Where can we find a narrative thread through this stuff? And this is where uh, he does. So I think that that's helpful. Um, I also think that the 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 stuff with the Q and A with with Steve Buscemi at Sundance, like that, feels like we're going to like. Uh, that scene ends up actually being less than I remember, but it ends up being still relatively short. Um, or, but, but it ends up being like, yeah, we're going to, now we're going to move through, through this scene. Um, and we still haven't gotten to the point yet. They do have the, the crew mutiny scene, uh, in the trailer with the same guy from last time, but you're right. He immediately calls out that like, we can't, everyone knows the bit now we can't do the bit again and, ha- and actually get people to fall for it. And so I think in, and, and I think the movie sort of, takes it is shaped around that idea of we're not we're going to do it's called take two and a half um but really this is this is really more just like a retrospective on the first movie um by showing stuff that was cut having them talk from the first movie having them uh talk about what happened in the first movie and then a sort of like a uh, a sort of an exercise we're going to shoot another symbiopsychotaxoplasm um in the uh there is a uh, there's a there's a documentary that came out a few years ago about one of my favorite shows star trek deep space nine and it was produced by the people who made the show and uh, in addition to like all the interviews with cast members and sort of telling the story of what that show was there was this this thread throughout the documentary of all the writers getting of the show getting back together to write what would have been the next episode uh if they were to restart the show which um i thought that their ideas were actually bad and terrible and uh but 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 the idea of like we're going to like as a through line to this move this movie about our show we're going to see like what would it be like to do it again or to to sort of try and pick up where we left off and i feel like simba i think like take two and a half does a similar thing and because it's not as but because most of the movie 
it, it doesn't occupy sort of the central place of the movie. I still, I think it's still effective. And where, and I think where I'm unfortunately going to let you down, Chris, is I, I think take one actually is the one that I like the most. Um, but take two manages to avoid being a failure because they, they do realize that like, that we can't just do this again. So we're just going to sort of make this more of a, a documentary about the first movie and then the 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 extra the 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 acting the 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 second version of it that they do ends up having a different feel to it um because largely it is focused on the actors and i think to your point about the about the the the, the acting in the third person and the layers of reality there i think that is the one place in the movie where they actually do manage to hit a similarly unnerving uh vibe that to to uh that feels evocative of the first movie is which was which wasn't very explored much at all in the first one the first one the 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 actors and their feelings like i had to actually watch it a few times to get a sense of like what is actually happening in the scene because the first movie doesn't really in the assembled movie they don't seem to that care that much about what the actors are actually saying there's something about yeah. there's something about abortion and someone being gay maybe but like you don't really know and you don't really care this movie feels like it's much more interested in sort of trying to dig into that which i feel is like a smart pivot like this is something that doesn't feel like a rehash of the first one and then i at various points i feel like i'm watching the two actors talking and then all of a sudden someone comes into frame and says cut and i'm like wait what or the the the, when the acting coach or therapist or whatever whoever that person is when they when they at various points you you think you have some kind of grounding and you repeatedly have the rug pulled out from under yeah. you it's uh i i feel like that is probably the actual and that that only ends up taking up i think the last like 20 so uh minutes or, or it's a small chunk at the end of the film but it ends up being the one thing i think that is actually like no this this is actually effective at confusing the hell out of me in the way that the the first movie was uh was was it well my my when i texted you that i said i had a take about this the my original uh my original thought was that uh did you ever see the 21 jump street movies with uh, uh seth yeah. rogan and no no uh, jonah hill and channing tatum yeah yes jonah hill and channing tatum um did you see the second one yeah so the second one, the bit in the second one is they try to, they get recruited for another assignment and they try to do all of the things that they did last time. And every time they try to repeat the moves that they did in the last time, they always come up short. And right. so ultimately they try to have to basically come up with something that's entirely conceptually different in order to sort of accomplish their mission. And th in that movie, that felt like them trying to solve the problem of how do you make a sequel that's not just a rehash. And <laughs> watching Take Two and a Half again, my first thought was, this is like 22 Jump Street. Like, this is this is the filmmaker trying to basically address the same concerns uh, in, in, the, in the same way, in a similar way to uh, a Jonah Hill, Channing Tatum uh, dumb comedy. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. i so don't know that, that that helps me <laughs> no it, it it wouldn't but uh when i said i had to take that was basically my take was oh yeah because i because I, I remember thinking watching when i was watching 22 jump street that that was like oh yeah they're they're trying to do a thing they're they're trying really hard to not just repeat themselves and and i feel like in the 
there there's it flirts with that a little bit but greaves is smart enough even uh 30 years later that he's able to like more or less avoid um or like basically skirt by even if i I think i still prefer part one but yeah sorry i don't have i I don't have the answer to uh what that acting thing is about that one messed me up (laughs) (laughs) which is probably what greaves intended i I mean if, if the thing that i take away most from the films and again, it, it it's from the Q and A scene in uh, the second film. You know when he's having the argument with his, um, I, I I forget the role he plays, but he was one of the original crew members, and he's now there at the Q and A. And they were talking about um, the conflict and the themes that were present. And um, William Greaves said, "Ultimately, I don't care if you take if you understand what I'm trying to do or not, because ultimately, what I want out of the film is for you to experience it." And come away challenged to start to think in a different way or to look at something in a different way. And if you've done that, then you've taken away what I wanted you to take away from the film. Uh, and I think and I'm, I'm very loosely paraphrasing what he says in the Q&A, but um, that was really striking to me was that, you, you know, which is what art is supposed to be. Art is supposed to be this thing that you consider and in the consideration of the art, you come away with a new way of perceiving even if it's limited to you know just one thing it may not change your world but if it changes your way of thinking on a particular thing or a particular flow uh then art has ultimately succeeded and and i think it was just a wonderful way to do it and and both of his films um one one just as much it's it's just a beautiful example of something that was crafted with with it, it's almost weird to say with such care because so much of it was happenstance and, and, and chance in what he was performing. But, you know, a, a film is not ultimately a film until it is crafted and, and honed and edited and then packaged as this thing. And the fact that he was able to, to my mind, successfully do that with both films in such a way that even if one didn't impact me as much as the other, I could definitely say I left both thinking you know, being confused and then in the act of confusion, trying to think of a way toward understanding and that way of understanding changed the way I thought. I mean, so ultimately these are very successful films in the way that I think Reeves intended. And I mean, and it should also like, we we don't need to dwell on it too long, but it also sort of brings to mind that like, like I, I don't, I don't, not having seen the the whole breadth of his of his body of work but if he did if he did a whole career where no one knew that he did symbiopsychotaxoplasm and someone thought he was important enough to do uh, a sort of a big uh, film event about showcasing his entire film the rest of his entire filmography then like clearly this is um this is not this is it any sense of like tragedy is a bit muted because he was still able to do a lot in his life but I won't lie, it also makes me wonder, like, <clears throat> if if the circumstances of this film's release had been any different, uh, what could that have possibly led him towards? Like, what kind of weird, uh, you know, weirdo artsy career uh, could he have pursued in uh, in the event that this that Take One was seen in its proper format and people saw it and liked it? Um, because because the reaction when it came out in the '90s seemed to be largely like what in the absolute like it, it's like finding out like there was a Beatles that existed but somehow you didn't know about it it's like what the fuck like how did I not know about this um and like what could potentially have come up afterwards so 
Um, yeah, this is, uh, I, again, we, I think in this case, we did talk a bit, I mean, I feel like the story of the history of this, these two movies is not just played out in the movies themselves, but also ends up being as important to the conversation. But, uh, the, the, the whole, uh, especially coming back at this for a the second take uh for the second time uh watching it for the podcast I was like man this is just wild and uh if you have the chance to you know to watch it if, whether it's on Criterion or you know YouTube or wherever you can track it down like it's uh it this is just a fascinating piece of film history that is absolutely uh worth tracking down yeah, the first film is, uh, besides being on the Criterion channel and, and obviously part of the Criterion collection, um, because of the relationship that is now had with Warner Brothers, you can also find the first film on HBO Max. If you're an HBO subscriber, you should be able to find it there. And now it's time for our film recommendation segment where we uh, recommend some more movies that you should watch. So, Chris, why don't you take it away? Yeah, so this is going to be a weird one um, because I'm not 100% sure I'm recommending that you watch it because I've only kind of watched it. Um, and what I mean by that is I've only watched one version of it and only started watching a second version of it. So I am going to make the case for Zack Snyder's Justice League, which came out on Thursday on HBO Max if you have the ability to see it. It is the four and a half hour or so cut of the 2017 film that uh, famously uh, Zack Snyder kind of left uh, midway through production due to a tragedy in his family. Joss Whedon was called in to finish it uh, and famously kind of threw out about 80% of what Snyder did, rewrote the script, tried to inject some Avengers humor into it, and kind of came away with a debacle. Um, so why am I recommending a film that I've only kind of half seen? Um, and when I say that, I mean that in the last couple of days, I did rewatch the Whedon cut, uh, as I'll call it for this purpose. Um, it's only the second time I've seen it. And I had started them about an hour into the Zack Snyder cut, which is significantly different. I have no way to tell you whether it's better or not yet. I will tell you that I'm not a big fan of the first film. Uh, but why am I recommending it? Um, really because of symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Uh, and I'll make that connection as loosely as I can now. So, um, one of the things that I really took away from the film, because it, I, I admit when you made that your choice, I was like, I, this was never a film I had any interest in. Uh, and then, again, after watching the first film, I'm like, I don't really know what I saw. I'm interested, but I don't quite get it. I don't know that I've ever would have picked this for myself. And then I was kind of blown away by seeing the second piece, which informs the first piece. And a lot of what I realized as I was kind of going through that was my own preconceived preconceived notions of, excuse me, what I like as a viewer, what I think about film and filmmakers, and what I think about kind of the art of film. And it it would behoove us to sometimes break away from our preconceived notions more. Uh, thank goodness I did that with your picks because ultimately I found an enriching experience watching these two films by William Greaves. Um, and that may not happen with Zack Snyder's Justice League, but it's such a rare instance where the zeitgeist hits and we have a film that never would have been released in a million years except for rabid 
kind of weird fanboys and fangirls and fan people screaming for releasing the Snyder Cut. And you can have a completely different podcast about how that was handled. Um, but ultimately, we had a chance for a filmmaker to come back and say, well, this is going to be my final word, take it or leave it, and I'm going to make it as indulgent as I want. And I think that's interesting. I was reading some of the advanced reviews, um, all of which seemed to kind of hinge on, well, it's better. It could be a lot shorter. It still has all the same problems I would expect it to have. Uh, but then I read one review uh, by a gentleman named Walter Chow. Uh, from, uh, he writes for a lot of places, a lot of kind of prestigious places too. Um, but he wrote this review of Zack Snyder's Justice League from filmfreakcentral.net. Uh, I really encourage you, even if you don't want to watch the movie, read his review because his review is very much about being a critic and being a, a film journalist and having pre preconceived notions and being influenced by all of this stuff and having that kind of control what he sees or what he doesn't see or what he ultimately feels about a movie and realizing that those barriers and those those screens are there and understanding how that could prevent you from maybe experiencing something that that might have value and might have merit maybe not in the way that you expect just like with the uh, symbiopsychotaxoplasm, but in a completely different way. And his review, which is, again, just beautiful. So maybe I'm recommending a film review more than I'm re recommending a movie, but his, his film review is very personal and, and, and talks about that and talks about what it means to kind of champion certain things because of the zeitgeist of maybe not the, uh, the film fans, but the zeitgeist of cinemaphiles, uh, which you and I definitely, you know, talk about being in that club. Um, so it's just a real interesting experience to have that we have this second take of a movie that we should never have had. Um, and for better or for worse, I mean, just from what I've seen, it is, uh, it is a Zack Snyder movie. Um, and it's kind of bold and it's kind of audacious. And man, even in the first hour that I've experienced, it's got problems. Um, but it's fascinating at the same time. And I find myself taking things away from it just in terms of in, in intents and, 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 and shots and even like his use of aspect ratio and, and, and why this is kind of in, um, a, a academy box format and what that means that I wouldn't have had the chance to experience if I just kind of toss this off as I'm not going to watch this four and a half hour drivel for a movie I already hated the first time. So this is kind of an open call recommendation to say um, whether it's it's the Justice League movie or, again, if nothing else, read Walter Chow's uh, review from Film Freak Central. Um, take a chance on something that you normally wouldn't take a chance on and try to open yourself up to it and not sit there with the cynical helmet on and the jaded view um, and just see if it affects you. I, I've been finding more and more lately, even stupid movies um, uh, or movies that have very little value. I recently had to watch a lot of weird anime movies with my son. Uh, we also watched Batman v Superman together because he wanted to see that and had never seen it. Um, again, not a movie I, I particularly like, but and I'm sure you've had the same experience, John, watching a film with a child kind of lowers those inhibitors a little bit and allows you to experience some things more openly. Um, sadly, that was not the case when my wife and I watched Coming to America 2. 
which <laughs> I do not recommend on any level. But uh, it's it, it's a real interesting thing. So I, I again, we have an opportunity to see this weird thing that hopefully will never happen again. I, there's already a dozen articles of now give us the cut of this movie that we were always promised. They're already, they're already talking about uh, David Ayer's cut of Suicide Squad because that was butchered. Please do not make this a normal thing. I, this can be a one and done filmmaker came back after a terrible tragedy to make the film in his own vision. I don't ever need to see it again, but uh, I, I I think there's a chance to kind of take something and take it with a fresh perspective and see what you can do with that perspective. So that in a weird way is my recommendation this month. I'm trying to process my thoughts because I, I'm, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the reactions I'm seeing to the Snyder cut uh, um, people who like, I, I am seeing a lot of the, yeah, of course it's, it's not good. It's not great or whatever, but I'm seeing a lot more people being like, there's something here, even if it's, if it's not perfect and there's a lot of problems, but like there's something to it. And I'm seeing that from enough people, even people I wouldn't expect to hear that from that, uh, that I'm just like, you know, I may have to actually go and watch this. And I never saw the, the original uh i haven't uh, i've largely kept out of the dc films other than like wonder woman and stuff but like uh at a certain point there's it feels like they might just pick up enough momentum that i may just have to find a way to watch it so i would really recommend it like it like, like i said having seen the weeding cut and seeing the first hour here of the snyder cut um there there is something here like i said like ultimately it may not work for you as a film but it's there. I'm I'm finding value, and I'm I'm finding things about it that are, are definitely enjoyable. The guy can paint a picture. The guy can frame an image. The the guy can work with myths and 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 kind of um, god building in a way that I think is really interesting. Even though ultimately I feel some of his characterizations are misguided. Um, or that, Hey, you know what? No one needs a four and a half version of this film. We could definitely trim some of it out. Um, I really, I'm still kind of, kind of amazed by it in a way. Uh, so definitely worth again, checking out if you have the chance and if nothing else, again, I, <laughs> I don't know how much traffic this guy will get from me saying it, but, but please Walter Chow, who is, is just pretty much a great reviewer um for anything but he really knocked it out of the park with his r review of this film so check him out i see you have just texted me that film review so i will go and read that after we finish recording so <laughs> <laughs> my uh my recommendation for this episode is going to be the movie nation time by william greaves this movie was it came out in 1972 and this movie uh which i saw because it was on criterion um it this i feel is the this is a represent this is more representative of what uh William Greaves was mostly known for. Um so this is a documentary that he shot at the 1972 National Black Political Convention that was in Indiana. Um it's basically a, a bunch of uh, a big gathering of uh political voice different uh, political voices from uh from across the US. Uh you have Jesse Jackson, I, I think even like Angela Davis was there. Uh it's it was it's it's sort of a the the the, the opening sort of credits at the beginning of the film talk about how this convention was seen as largely like a failure because they weren't able to build a consensus around, you know, forming a new 
political parties specifically for black people or any of that stuff. But then the bulk of the movie is spent sort of as sort of this like lively celebration of, you know, the, the speech from Jesse Jackson is who it's just as someone who's only ever seen Jesse Jackson as a, as an older guy, seeing him as a, as a, as a younger guy with a huge Afro is, uh, is just, <clears throat> it was wild. And then the speech he gives is, is particularly fantastic. Um, and there's there's narration from Sidney Poitier. There's there's music that uh, there's there's excellent per- musical performances as well. It's just sort of this like great celebration of uh, uh, of you know of, of that of that time and, and of that culture. And yeah, towards the end, it's not really the 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 editing of the movie doesn't really uh, get into too much of the detail of why this event was seen to be a failure or or what they weren't able or what they were struggling with that they weren't able to get past and you still do start to feel that tension towards the end of it but it's still like if it's not successful in its primary goals uh, as a like as a conference then the film itself still works as a sort of like as an as a, an encapsulation of that moment and i feel like that's more like that ends up being sort of what william grease ends up making his most of his career out of is sort of these like interesting uh diy documentary films yeah that was one of the ones i I was saying you know one of the big things i came away with after watching the the two films was i i i want to see more of what william greaves does especially in a context that's maybe not as um uh out puzzling there. in in its in its construction and nation time was one of the ones that i i immediately picked up on um i don't know if it had like a wider release last year but i know um it was th- there was a couple of reviews that came out last year for it um that were pr- particularly favorable so that's that that's one of the ones i really want to try and chase down it's 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 definitely it, yeah, it's worth watching, and it it doesn't uh uh and and if you're un, unlike me, if you're someone who didn't respond favorably to symbiopsychotaxoplasm, uh, then this is a better a better sense of like what he tended to do as uh, as a filmmaker. I think it's uh, it's still it's still fun, it's still uh, it's still interesting, and uh, yeah. Well, I think that's going to probably wrap it up for us. Um, I wanted to mention before we before we close out uh, at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned being a guest on a, on a podcast. And if you have any interest in following uh, my musical exploits or hearing me fanboy about uh, Devin Townsend, uh, you can listen to me on the Diary of Doom uh, podcast. They had me on, uh, and it was a it was a lovely chat. The first part went up uh, this week, and uh, I think they. I think we talked long enough that actually they ended up uh, splitting it into two halves. So second half should be coming out soon. But uh, yeah, if you ever want to hear me, my thoughts on, on music and that kind of stuff, then that's a, that was a, that was a, that was a good time and uh, a fairly in-depth conversation as well. Uh, Chris, do you have anything you want to plug these days or is it mostly just, you know, keep your head down at work kind of stuff? It's, it's mostly keep my head down at work. Uh, I'm strangely, uh, writing somewhat consistently for nine circles again. So at least, um, one album a week, uh, trying to keep my hand good there. So, uh, if you want to check out my writing, you can do it there or consuming the tangible. Um, otherwise, if you want to hear my voice, you're doing it right now on this podcast, which is pretty much where I'll be for the foreseeable future. (laughs) 
Nice. Um, I should also mention that I do, uh, since we recorded last, I haven't done any uh, further progress on the Agnes Varda project, but I am actually like, I'm actually watching the movies now for the, for the next one. So the next, uh, the next post is mostly going to be about Vagabond, uh, a movie we've t- covered on this podcast before. So Oof. it'll be fun to see if I have uh, any other uh, ideas I can wring out of that movie. So uh, uh <laughs> But yeah, thank you. Uh, it was good to to get back to this uh, again, Chris. It, again, it, it felt like it's been a minute, but uh, it's always fun to to chat. And I look forward to uh, to our next episode. Me too, sir. Always good chatting with you. All right, take care. Bye bye.